It's Thursday, April 28, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Vroda, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics, in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel, and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Lee, I actually want to start off with your column uh, in California on your mind um, this week. Uh, You note how the state is generally failing its students in their development of basic math skills. Quote, the average eighth grade Hispanic or black student in California demonstrates mathematical competency that is below the fourth grade level and just slightly above the third grade grade level. Uh, One way the state is proposing to improve math education is through a data science course as a substitute for Algebra 2. Their sales pitch is that, number one, students are failing algebra because of outdated teaching methods and antiquated curricula. And number two, learning data science will help students identify truth from lies in social media. Lee, why do you think this is such a problem? Yeah, so Jonathan, um, California education has really fallen in terms of tangible, tangible, uh, you know, tangible yardsticks, uh, such as the number of students judged to be competent uh, in, ter- uh, in terms of math testing scores, science testing scores, reading testing scores. All those scores have, um, have either declined or not budged over decades, whereas educational systems in other countries have improved substantially. So back in the day, California um, and the United States more broadly had the highest performing K through 12 education systems. Now we're around number 35 um, among OECD countries. So getting back to uh, the comment I wrote this week, we've got a big chunk of California students, um, Hispanic students and black students are simply not learning math at anything close to acceptable level. As you noted, they, uh, the average Latino uh, and black eighth grader is barely above a third grade comprehension in math. And if you, you know, dig a little bit deeper and want to know what that means, eighth graders, uh, Hispanic and, and black eighth graders um, are having trouble being able to multiply a two digit number by a one digit number, such as three times nine, what we might call is, you know, the times tables back, you know, back in the day. And they're also having trouble understanding fractions, the simplest fractions, such as understanding that one half is bigger than one third, or one half is bigger than one over six. Okay. So that's the level of competency or lack of competency that's going on in California education right now is particularly hitting Black and Latino students. Why? Because a lot of those students attend some of the worst performing schools in the state. And we have been throwing a lot of money at state schools for decades. And over these decades, parents and students and other stakeholders in this, which is taxpayers who are running the system, have been promised, you know, a new curriculum after another, new teaching method after another, It's not working. And what is really sad, in my opinion, is that right now, 
California is essentially giving up. They are giving up, in my opinion, on educating the most vulnerable, the most at-risk kids. They're giving, in math, they're giving up on educating Hispanic and Black kids in math. So how are they doing that? They're going to move the goalposts. They're going to say, you know what? You don't need to learn algebra anymore. We will put you into a data science course. So you don't need to learn algebra. Now, this is a huge problem because when we think about the jobs that are hot today, software engineering, chemical engineering, accounting, actuarial science, finance, computational life sciences, all of these in-demand math science intensive occupations require kids to learn high school mathematics. They need to understand algebra. A lot of those occupations need some background in calculus and probability. And these kids are not learning that. And if California educators have their way, they're not gonna have the opportunity to learn that. Instead, they're gonna be pushed into what are called data science classes. And for, you know, if as a taxpayer, as, a, as someone who studies the economics of education as a California taxpayer, this is being done for the absurd idea. So students can read social media websites and quote, be able to draw inferences from statistical statements made on those websites. And I think we sort of know what that means. The people who are engineering this want students to be able to go on to conservative websites and say, oh, these people don't know what they're talking about when they quote some statistic, but be able to go on to CNN or, or maybe a very liberal website and say, oh, gee, there's a statistical statement that looks good. Um, so this is, this is soul crushing, in my opinion. I think Latino parents, black parents, they should be going to their school systems and demanding, why isn't my kid learning math? What are you going to do about it? And over my dead body, are you going to push them into, into some cultural, literary, social critique class so they can think about social media websites the way you want? So I think this is absolutely horrific. Something else, uh, Lee, that kind of makes you scratch your head, uh, as I understand it, as the uh, state was going through the uh, framework, uh, there was a proposal to eliminate the grouping of students based on ability. And at the same time, Lee, they wanted to push back algebra to ninth grade. Uh, this causes a problem in that if you want to take algebra in eighth grade and ninth grade, it ultimately it stifles your math learning. It means you have to double up on math at some point in high school. Um, it just makes it awkward for those who are gifted to study. But Lee, it's also very tough on black and Latinos who want to pursue um, math as well, uh, who are underrepresented in this. So here's kind of the question, Lee, and trying to basically make this a good social outcome to kind of level the playing field. It sounds like they are punishing uh, those gifted Californians. It comes, by the way, uh, I was reading this morning, the Wall Street Journal, this remarkable piece about this uh, young woman who applied to about every great university in America. She applied to all the Ivy. She applied to Stanford. Uh, she had this incredible resume. She had a 395 GPA. She got a 1550 on her board scores. Uh, she took algebra in third grade, I believe. She's just an incredibly smart kid. She got shot down from every college she applied to. And one of the reasons why Lee and Jonathan is because colleges have become a vast knowledge uh, numbers game uh, based in part upon colleges doing away with standardized testing. So just every man, woman, child can apply to a college. Now colleges now looking more at social uh, qualifications than they are academics. So anyway, forgive the filibuster here, but I just 
I read this and I see that you want to group, uh, you want to take away putting together promising kids. You just want to put all the kids together and you want to make it easier for the kids who are struggling by pushing back algebra. Lee, I don't see who wins under this scenario. No, no. And Bill, um, a lot of this is coming from a single person, uh, a woman named Joe Bowler, who um, who is a professor, not a professor of mathematics, but a professor of mathematics education at Stanford. Um, and she is, uh, she is arguing that it's okay to postpone algebra. Uh, she is citing studies that indicate gifted students, putting gifted students together. Now we don't use the term gifted anymore. Putting, you know, however you want to say it, putting students who score high on tests, not, not separating those kids out into their own class, that shouldn't be done anymore. Um, and interesting, I left Bill, um, you know, the reason I wrote this column is because I got an email. I don't know how the fellow got my email address, but um, maybe he wrote me up. Maybe he reads California on your mind in the name of uh, shameless self-promotion. But a professor, but a professor of computational biology and a professor of mathematics at, you know, our employer, Stanford, um, umbrella parent company, wrote to me and said, you know, we're really worried about this new educational proposal to you know, offer data science as an, uh, as an alternative to uh, algebra. So they sent me their letter. I read the letter, it's very, very powerful. My column this week provides the link to that, uh, to that letter. Um, I believe 400 professors uh, in California four-year or more colleges um, who teach a STEM field. So, you know, you can kind of imagine what that is. I signed the letter. Um, people from U every UC, every Cal State, uh, Caltech, Cal Poly Pomona, you name the university for your University of California, faculty in STEM areas have signed this letter. I believe there's close to 400 signatories now. Uh, and interestingly enough, from Stanford, where Joe Bowler, uh, the professor of math education, who's the person really trying to push these educational changes, over 60 Stanford STEM faculty have signed this letter saying, no, we need to be, we need to be offering algebra. We need them. You know, this is not an alternative to data science. Um, so there's an enormous amount of pushback among people who teach this stuff. And ironically enough, Bill, um, a lot of professors of data science at Stanford, at UC Berkeley, at UCLA, at Caltech, at UC San Diego are opposed to this change because they know that they know that once a kid, once a kid doesn't, once you don't take algebra, there's really no coming back. You're going to be too far behind. We're dooming these kids, very adverse vulnerable kids. We're dooming them to occupations that aren't going to pay them very well. And, and for the reason being that California doesn't want to take the time and, and figure out how to teach these kids math. And Bill, as you know, at the same time, uh, it wants to compress student learning outcomes by push, by putting together kids who 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 uh, succeed very highly at math with kids who don't. Now I'll tell you, I have read the studies that Professor Bowler cites and other cite, and uh, ironically, the quality of the data science work in these studies is absolutely abysmal. Yeah, I haven't read one. I haven't read one that should have passed the peer review publication stage. 
So if you walk around the Stanford campus, Lee and Jonathan, you'll notice these modern buildings that have the old retro look of the uh, 1890s campus, the the, the brown the, uh, sandstone look to them. And you look on them very closely and they have names on them like Gates and Gordon Moore and uh, the Google guys. Uh, this is where engineering and science is being done, cutting edge stuff at Stanford. It's where the next millionaires and billionaires are coming from. It's about a 10 minute walk, I think, from the School of Education, Lee, but I think you're suggesting there is something of a gigantic gulf between how, how one building sees the world and how the other building does. Yeah, there, there's an enormous gulf. And um, and we when we think about, you know, Gordon Moore, um, or we think about Sergey Brin, who is a PhD student at Stanford, right. <laughs> who co-founded Google, you know, what, what would the world look like if those mathematic technical geniuses had not been able to take algebra when they were in third or fourth grade, but had to sit in a class with unqualified teachers who were unqualified to teach mathematics and sit there and stare at the ceiling and be bored out of their minds. What would, what would the world look like? But that is the impetus within California right now. And, um, and, and sadly, there are no winners in this. Except for, except for the political group who are pushing this agenda and who make money and who make fame off of it. So it is, uh, it's sad, it's, um, it's shocking, and I hope more people will start, will start pushing back on this because it is damaging. Right. Now let's move on to your California on Your Mind column this week. Uh, you talk about uh, the reasons for the California exodus, um, mainly the lack of affordable housing, government overregulation, and a new era of remote work uh, that came about because of the pandemic. But you also talk about the exodus of to New York of Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. It wouldn't seem like a burden uh, to them, any of those afore- aforementioned issues. Uh, what do you think about, what is it about their lifestyle that doesn't that doesn't conform to that of the Golden State? We should add that they're not quite neighbors of Leo Hanian, but they're, that's a reasonable drive away if they ever invite you over Lee for a spot of tea some afternoon. Um, so here's what I got after with Harry and Meghan. There are re- news reports going around that they're looking at, uh, at either relocating to New York or getting a place in New York, basically to be close to the UN so they can be with their fellow you know, concerned about the world globalists. Uh, but it got me to thinking about uh, that they really have had kind of an awkward time in California. Um, they just have not really clicked in showbiz the way they thought. And I think it's because they really, at the end of the day, they don't produce much the way a product. Um, they've signed a big splashy deal with Netflix for content, uh, not much of which has showed up yet. They were in Holland at the Invictus Games. I guess they'll do a documentary based on that. Um, they have a podcast, which I think they've done scant few of. And the um, the analogy I used, uh, Lee and Jonathan, was if you hop in the car and drive from Montecito where they are, go past uh Go, you know, means you're bypassing Lee's Santa Barbara, but you're headed now toward Hollywood. You go through a town called Calabasas, where a lot of celebrities live, including the Kardashians. Now, we can say a lot about the Kardashians. Yes, it's an empire uh, that rests uh, atop of tawdriness, if you want to go down that road, because they first became famous when Kim Kardashian's sex tape got leaked. But the Kardashians are, at the end of the day, what in Hollywood they call workers. They put out content. They did a television show for 15 seasons. They're now on Hulu with a new, well, they call it a documentary, but it's basically reality TV revisited. 
They have fashion and cologne empires. Uh, a couple of the women in the family are billionaires now. Others are millionaires. I mean, it is a great American success story resting upon one thing, which is hard work, which you don't see from the Sussexes. So they could leave California, uh, the Sussexes, just because they have bruised egos. But if they want to come back to California and succeed, I think they have to work. Now, let's segue from that into another question of a um, of a Cal Exodus, a tech exodus, if you will. And that is the question of what's going to happen to Twitter, Lee and Jonathan. I uh, was up yesterday, uh, last night, writing a piece for the Washington Post. It may or may not see the light of day. If it doesn't see the light of day, I suspect it'll be a California in your mind column. Um, and it was kind of posing this question, how soon before Elon Musk pulls Twitter out of San Francisco? And he has a habit of doing this. Remember, he relocated te- Tesla's headquarters from Palo Alto to, to uh, Austin, Last year, he uh, set up a um, he set up uh, SpaceX launches out of Brownsville, Texas. Uh, he also has his uh, boring site that's boring with a capital B, not a not a commentary on him, but actually digging. That's in Austin as well, um, and he is uh, going to build cars out of uh, out of Texas as well. So, from a business sense, he might uh, just want to move Tesla uh, tech Twitter to Texas just to consolidate things and have them all within shouting distance of each other. But Lee and Jonathan, I think there's something else at foot here. If you look at the way that San Francisco treats tech right now, there's a pretty good argument for leaving. Uh, and Lee, what I have in mind in particular. Uh, San Francisco voters, Lee, in the last two elections have passed tax increases on businesses. Specifically, there are gross uh, receipts taxes. The one in 2018 targeted businesses, Lee, making more than $50 million a year. Um, the one passed in 2020 by voters was really much more of an FU to uh, tech executives. And what it said that um, a gross receipts tax will apply to companies where the uh, highest paid executive salary is 100 times more that of uh, the median compensated worker. Um, the idea is you're going to raise everybody's salary by doing this. I think the opposite happens, Lee. You're just going to encourage tech companies to get rid of the lower end of the salary scale. In other words, you know, workers and all that, you'll just outsource that. And so anyway, a company like Twitter can look at San Francisco and say, we like being here because it kind of, you know, plays well to our hipster progressive style. But between the condition of the city with, you know, which we always talk about in this show, homelessness, crime and so forth, but also business not being friendly and proof of this, by the way, PayPal yesterday. PayPal announced that it's pulling out of San Francisco, and kind of the unwhispered truth about this is that they're really upset about the uh, gross receipts taxes. Just said enough is enough. So, if Musk does pull out of um, does take Twitter out of San Francisco, the press will probably call it a temper tantrum. Uh, Lee, they'll probably go back to Musk's fights with California over trying to reopen his car plant in Fremont a couple of years ago. But I think what they won't focus on, what they should is that San Francisco, while it may be seen as a tech hub, it's not necessarily tech friendly anymore. No, exactly right. Um, Musk, I'm sure if he he had his way, would move Twitter out. Um, You know, whether that ends up being the most profitable decision or not, a lot of moving parts involved, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But but you know, based on uh, based on his priors, he is not a friend of California anymore. Uh, I mean, personally, I think it's great he he bought it out. Um, you know, interestingly enough, just as a little bit of a sidebar, I can't remember if Musk posted this or someone else posted this, but the post had to do with phil- uh, philanthropic giving and comparing Musk to um, uh, <laughs> our Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. And uh, the graphic showed that Musk had given away $8 billion during a period in which, uh, in which Senator Sanders gave away something like uh, $15,000. 
And then the, the, the title of the graphic was something like, it's always easier to play with other people's money. And, and you know, my goodness, is, isn't that true? Um, but this is, you know, I mean, Bill, this is bad news for the state because we are continuing to lose businesses. We're continuing to lose population. Way too many people, both households and business owners, are struggling in a state that's just over-the-top expensive, highly regulated, highly taxed, becoming uncompetitive. Um, and when we look at San Francisco, and Bill, you made the excellent point that it's no longer tech-friendly, passing you know, tax increase upon tax increase, but what's compounding the negative impact of those tax increases is that their tax increases in the worst possible way. And what I mean by that is that, you know, there's way to impose taxes that don't completely blow up an industry or a city or send businesses and people moving. But there are also ways to impose tax increases and blow up the city and get businesses moving. And that's what they're doing with things like gross receipts taxes and taxes that, um, that penalize businesses in which a CEO is earning a certain amount of times more than you know, the median paid worker, the lowest paid worker. So a company like Levi Strauss, retail, um, retail and uh, textile industry tends to be one in which there are a fair number of people who aren't paid super high salaries. So they're gonna leave, uh, even if it means just going across the bay to Oakland or to Orinda. Um, so San Francisco still doesn't get it. They, you know, they, they were blessed with the Golden Gate and the views and a remarkable history, but you know, they are just they they continue to flush that down the drain. And Bill, I loved your point about um, Megan and Harry and and not really finding a foothold in California and the comparison with the Kardashians, because at the end of the day, whether you're in Southern California or Northern California, and they're going to find that if they're in Manhattan, even the most liberal parts of Manhattan, the, uh, the first impression of being royals is going to wear off pretty quickly. And at some point, people are going to say, so what do you got for me? Well, we've got a former actress uh, and we've got her husband, who is uh, a prince, but um, who I, I don't know much, all that much about Harry. I've seen him around Santa Barbara a couple of times. Seems I've never met him. Seems like a nice fellow, but he's a guy that I don't think has accomplished an awful lot. So uh, at the end of the day, I suspect, I'll, you know, I could see them being bicoastal, a place in, a place in uh, New York and a, a place in, in Santa Barbara. But um, unlike the Kardashians, they're not, you know, they're not really crushing it. And uh, at some point they're going to have themselves, hey, so what do we have to offer people? Uh, and it might turn out that, you know, being buddies with Oprah and, and, and trying to be part of her empire is maybe the way to go. Um, but California, as you point out, Bill, California continues to bleed businesses, bleed people. And, you know, when is it going to stop? There are two other aspects of the uh, Musk Twitter saga that I want to get your thoughts on, Lee. One is that um, he is not just wading into San Francisco, but he's wading into really kind of the California way of work these days. Twitter, Lee, is notorious for allowing its workers to stay home, to work uh, offside, if you will. I think Jack, Stor Jack Dorsey told his employees last year they could work remotely forever if they so desired. Uh, uh, Musk got wind of this and he tweeted earlier this month, he's taken down the tweet, but he first heard that Twitter is going to basically be vacant. And so he said the office space should be converted into, and I quote him uh, here, quote, a homeless shelter 
culture since no one shows up anyway. So this is a different mindset about work. He just views if you're out of work, you're just not being as productive as you should. But the other angle here, Lee, to get your thoughts on is that Musk might want to stay out of California for, you know, not for residency purpose for another reason. That's because the uh, legislature, Lee, once again, is fiddling around with one of your and I's favorite ideas. They're revisiting the global wealth tax. So here we go again. It's like Charlie Brown of the football, I know. Uh, but they once again, they want to go after, um, they want a 1% tax on, uh, or I think it's a 1.5% tax, 1.5% uh, tax leak on wealth over a billion dollars and uh, slap on another extra 1% if you have wealth over $50 billion. Uh, a lot of billionaires in California, it thins out when you get to $50 billion, but that would include one Elon Musk. So the point of this, Lee, is that you look at San Francisco, you look at how Twitter approaches its business, you look at how the straight, uh, state treated your car company during the pandemic, and now you're looking at taxes inside San Francisco, you're looking at how things are done in Texas. Uh, just you got to wonder if Lee, Elon Musk does actually end up taking over this company, why would he allow it to stay in San Francisco? Yeah, I, I mean, I can't imagine that he would. Um, you know, when it comes to making when, when it will, and he's gonna he's gonna confront the issue of making Twitter profitable, um, yeah. which I'm sure at one point, yeah, you know, he's a very talented businessman. I'm sure he will. Um, but you know, wh whether that means having remote employees or having some employees not remote, um, but Bill, the the you know, just the the silly idea of legislators to think, gosh, you know what. We need more tax revenue. Um, now they don't, in my opinion, they don't. But there's this constant, insatiable desire to get tax revenue, and I think what they don't understand is the, uh, you know, in in grad school in economics and in public policy and in business, the number one principle of public finance of how to run a government, um, and it's more important at the at at the state is more important at the local level, the state level than, than at the national level, but you don't kill the golden goose. And who's the golden goose in California? <laughs> it's those billionaires because the top, I believe I made a calculation where I estimated the top one third of 1%, okay, lots of percentages, top one third of 1% um, paid about 30% of California's personal income tax. Um, so they're just paying enormous amounts of revenue. And you, you can't imagine that they haven't sat down and said, this is killing us. Um, and that they're not doing the calculations right now. And that if you deliver yet another tax on them, that they've done those calculations and they're gonna be leaving. So yes, they are in the process of killing the golden goose. We know the golden goose is, the golden goose is laying a lot of golden eggs. All of us here uh, in the state benefit uh, from those geese. Um, and I just don't understand why lawmakers don't see that. So that would be just a, a mistake of epic proportions, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't put it past them. Well, the final thought of that, we could move on. Um, it would have to go through the legislature because they're fiddling with tax rates. They would have to put it on the ballot in the form of a constitutional amendment. And we'd be back to what we saw at Proposition 13 being debated here in the 2020 election. And the question would be, gentlemen, how exactly you run that campaign? Because I've, I've talked about this before in this podcast. I apologize uh, if, if you've heard this already. But, you know, that campaign was a wake up call, I think, for how you sell tax increases in California and that they went down a very familiar road of trying to link it to schools and teachers and, 
you know, kind of the feel good public service, but really schools and teachers and, you know, schools and teachers are not quite viewed with the same awe and respect that they were before the pandemic. So I'd be very curious if you do want to sell this tax increase, besides obviously trying to vilify billionaires in California, to what purpose, who sells it for you? You know, what ends it going to? If it's going you know, to use teachers to sell it, I think you might be in trouble. You know, Bill, I was shocked to see the latest poll results um, in which parents are polled about their opinions and their and their views about public school education. And um, it has shifted just enormously since before the pandemic and after the pandemic. And obviously a lot of this is driven by the fact that public schools in particular in California were very slow to return, that the remote instruction, the Zoom learning was just such an abysmal loss for children. Um, and that there was really no sense of urgency, no sense of my God, we got to do something for these kids. We really have to get them back on track. There was just a lot of a lot of really, um, you know, whining among the education system about coming back and safeguards. And despite enormous investments, the schools received to make them safe, and despite the fact that kids, as a demographic, are really unlikely to spread COVID. Um, that there was just no sense among parents that schools, the education system had their kids' best interests in mind. So that has changed enormously. So Bill, I agree entirely. You can't, you can no longer tr trot out the smiling teacher with an apple in her or his hand and say, hey, how can we not fund, how can we not fund this person? So I don't know if they're gonna trot out the, uh, you know, can't trot out the police now, maybe trot out the firefighters or other first responders. Um, and Bill, you know, just, to, just one last thought on this. I wonder who this, this message would be, would be pitched to. Um, there's an awful lot of Hispanic households in California who aren't nearly as let's vilify the rich, let's go woke, let's be progressive. Right. These are people who are rather self-employed. They deal with taxes. They deal with regulations. Um, they understand that high-income families purchase their services, whatever those services are. So I sort of wonder whether there's kind of a collapsing group of people who are going to be amenable to that pitch. Because in the 2020 election, a lot of propositions that people thought were going to pass that would be higher taxes, more liberal policies, those went down in flames. Yeah, so essentially, if you do this campaign, Lee, you're probably going to look to two national Democrats to be your spokespeople, and that'd be Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Those are two very white bread individuals who just do not play well among minorities. So here's the question. Maybe it's time for AOC to spread her wings and come to California and be a part of commercials to see if she has appeal to Hispanic voters, which in a way, by, by the way, might be kind of a way for us to see if she really does have a national impact and perhaps a presidential player. But uh, so that's your lovely thought. We may lose Meghan Markle. We may get AOC. <laughs> Another current challenge for California gentlemen is a severe drought that has prompted the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California to declare a water emergency and impose restrictions that will affect 6 million locals. The water restrictions will take effect on June 1st. Outdoor watering, such as watering of lawns and washing of cars, will, washing of cars will be limited to one day uh, per week for about a third of the region. And cities and small suppliers connected to the water district will be required to meet certain monthly allocation limits. If they exceed limits, they will be fined $2,000 per acre foot. Uh, what comes into question here uh, is, is 
about California is the future of the Central Valley, um, a region heavily dependent on its agricultural business. Uh, gentlemen, how can the state best conserve its water, especially through creative repurposing of land and improving its water capacity? You know, Jonathan, um, this is you know, so the question about water use. And um, you know, I'm dating myself here, but but the but I you know, but besides besides a stint at teaching um, at universities outside California and getting a PhD outside California, I lived all, all my life in the state, and um, and we can go back, you know, again, not to date myself, but I remember as a kid 50 years ago, I remember growing up in Central California on the coast, water rationing. Um, and so this problem has been with us now for five decades and politicians continue to kick the can down the road, uh, particularly in the last 25 years when weather patterns have shifted. Why? I think that's up for debate, but rainfall in California is decidedly less today on average than it was back in the 1990s or 80s or 70s or 60s. Um, so what do we do about that? Um, on the one hand, we can expand supply. Desal is an option that's becoming more environmentally friendly and also much more efficient and also much less expensive. So that is there for us to grab. Um, are we grabbing it? A, a little bit, but approval and regulatory matters make, make it incredibly complicated, excessively expensive, and it takes now decade or more to get these plants into play. When we think about the broader issues, say LA residents, um, what, what, uh, what a lot of media stories miss is who uses water and how much. So, you know, the, 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 the three of us sitting here and everybody living at home is not a farmer uh, or who does not work within California's environmental district uses 10%, 10 to 15% of the state's water are, are, is used by us. So having household use or non-agricultural industry use less water, it's really hard to, to move the needle very much because we don't use much water to begin with. Most of the state's water is used for ag, and for environmental purposes, which really gets expensive during drought years because there are federally protected creeks and rivers within the state take about 25% of our water bill, okay? Um, so in the Sacramento Delta, um, you know, we've talked about this before, we have the Delta smelt, about a two or three inch little silvery fish that is on the endangered species list. Um, you know, we use about 10% of California's water budget to protect the Delta smelt uh, and, uh, and to protect steelhead salmon. So the common sense issues are not being addressed. We're not expanding water supply. Um, we are not addressing issues within agriculture. We continue to grow alfalfa hay, which is the second thirstiest crop in the state next to rice. Um, why are we growing alfalfa and rice in California? Because of a bizarre and Byzantine set of regulations that make it profitable to grow those crops, despite the fact that almonds, which Bill talked about in his column today, almonds are five times as valuable as hay and maybe four times as valuable as rice. We shouldn't be growing those thirsty crops in California. Um, 
it's just kind of obvious economic common sense. There's no justification for this. So there's a lot of things we can do and we can do immediately. But again, politicians are going to kick the can down the road. Yeah, two things here. First of all, um, I think California's got to just sort of revisit its priorities for the Central Valley. What landmark stands out in the valley right now? It's the high-speed rail. Uh, the high-speed rail is not making the valley any lusher, any greener, any more profitable necessarily. And so you just wonder the billions that were have been spent on that endeavor over the years are somehow they're going to put to a better purpose, either local transportation or in some way working on water supplies, infrastructure. Uh, the second question is this. Gavin Newsom came to office in 2019 and immediately hot-footed it down to Fresno in the Central Valley and made a point of showing that he was a governor of all Californians. And that's because he looked at the results and saw the drop-off as to how well he ran on the coast. But then when you go to Fresno and go inland, uh, his support falls off. So he wanted to show that he was a, a, a more dynamic governor than people thought. Uh, I'm not sure what he is doing for the Central Valley these days. And he does have a re-election this fall and he will have a second term coming up. And I think that might be a good opportunity, Lee and Jonathan, for him to kind of reboot and rethink California and revisit the Central Valley and maybe have to sit down and talk about what thing, things Lee is talking about, not just about water supplies and, and how to improve that, but also in terms of crops and just a more dynamic economy it was certainly you know certainly if Newsom is interested um in higher political office and you know we're 90 percent you know you and i are kind of 90 percent confident that he is then that would make a lot of sense for him to do that because it's been nearly 15 years since the state's financial crisis the country's financial crisis um the central valley still hasn't recovered economically from that from 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 that crisis, uh, and then they were hit again with COVID. So, Bill, as you and I have talked about before, in just a number of ways, there's several different Californias that couldn't be more different: Coastal California versus the Central Valley. And Bill, you know, but uh, you'll probably know more about this than I do. But um, before the pandemic, I believe Newsom had carved out, you know, close to a hundred million for investments in the Central Valley, which I thought made a lot of sense. Um, and I agree with you entirely that if we can only repurpose money for for the uh, for um, high-speed rail, I, I say that with quotes because whatever we get is probably not going to be high-speed. Um, so if he wants to appeal to people outside California, it would be it would behoove him to say, hey, you know what? I I united California. I brought the Central Valley out of a 10 or 15 or 20 year economic depression. And that's something that maybe could play nationally. Um, but when we look at the election bill in, uh, in this November, I mean, what, what would you guess? What would you guess would be the over under for, the, you know, for his vote share? A percentage statewide? Yeah. Interesting uh, question I mean, because I was talking to a consultant about this the other day. He got 61%, I think, when he ran in 2018. I think he got almost the same exact number in the recall last year. Uh, I don't think he's going to get anything close to 61%. I would guess that he might be in the mid to lower 50s, and it could possibly be about a 10 point race. Um, and that's because, first of all, he doesn't have Donald Trump to run against. Remember, he ran against Donald Trump in 2018, even though Trump wasn't on the ballot. He still bashed Donald Trump. And he turned Larry Elder into Donald Trump with a lot of help for Larry Elder uh, in that process. Uh, he doesn't have that luxury this time around. And he has a state that's um, not 
uh, on a very good path, voters in a bad mood. So he might underperform actually in the election. I mean, uh, so you raise it up because again, consultants, that's what consultants are buzzing about. If you talk about Republicans or any non-Democrat having a shot in a, in a down ticket race in California, that's their hope that the governor's race is actually kind of flatter than people think. And the obvious parallel here would be 2002 when Gray Davis runs for re-election and California is going through a real economic problem. And he's re-elected, but he wins, I think, only by about five points over Bill Simon, having won by 20 points the previous time around. So it's possible for governors to limp back into a second term. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting you say that, Bill, because if we got a replay, if we got a replay of Gray Davis's slow erosion over time, um, that would mean that Republicans could potentially, or let's say non-woke Democratic policymakers could become relevant or perhaps very relevant if there's a lot of weakness for Newsom at the governor level. Um, I mean, when I think about if you just picked him up and put him in a lot of other states, even states that are blue, and you just put the record out there, I'm thinking, you know, there's not a lot of states where this guy would get reelected, even among the blue states. New York, okay, give, give you that. Rhode Island, okay. Massachusetts, Maybe, but there's a lot of states where people might just say, you know what, you just haven't delivered. You there's a lot of there's a lot of words, and the roads are still broken, the schools the schools are still broken, and taxes are still high, and housing is still expensive. And my God, what do you do about any of these things? Um, so yeah, yeah, the fall will be an interesting time for us. Well, the final note on water, and we can move on, is uh, things may change a year from now in California, depending on the congressional elections. Kevin McCarthy, uh, current problems notwithstanding, could be the speaker a year from now, which means he might want to engage the governor in California in conversation about water. Uh, but here, somebody's going to have to move because Republicans are very dug in their water positions in California in terms of farmers over habitat, and Democrats are just the opposite. It's habitat over farmers, if you will. But if you're the Biden administration, you've had a very bad midterm election, Lee and Jonathan, you're looking to do a few things just to show you're not what people think you are. The boys, you got punished for being too liberal. Uh, here's a chance to fiddle around with California water policy. But again, I'd be kind of surprised the Biden administration is willing to do that because they just seem so adamant on the whole environmental front to, to actually do this. But again, this is part of California's challenge in moving forward. Somebody's going to have to break out of form, especially on the left, and be willing to be a little open-minded to water policy. Yeah, I see that as a gamble, um, you know, depending on politicians, a gamble that they should be willing to take because yeah. these are huge problems and you can make a little bit of progress on it. You know, that can play really well and that can play really well for a long time. Another um, another issue, gentlemen, that will um, be an issue um, this fall is that of the price of gasoline, which is currently on average $5.68 per gallon in the Golden State. Uh, state lawmakers have until Sunday to pass legislation that would stop an automatic gas tax, which is now at 54 cents a gallon. Uh, the question is, do they have the political will to give residents some California residents some relief? Um, also, what about the future of other proposed measures such as direct payments to drivers, subsidized public transportation, the canceling of diesel taxes for a year, or the idea that refuses to die a 1.5% tax on California billionaires and, a, and another 1% on top of that for people with wealth exceeding $50 billion. Right. So a few weeks ago, um, the governor and lawmakers just stumbled over each other to show who cares the most about beleaguered California 
drivers and the horrible price of gasoline. Here we are approaching the beginning of May and the uh, increase in the gasoline tax is about to kick in. It's not a crushing increase. You probably wouldn't really notice it if you filled up. We're talking about going from, I think, 51 cents a gallon for the state tax to 54 cents. So three cents for, you know, let's say 15 gallons of gas, that's 45 cents. But Lee, Jonathan, it's a principle of the matter. It's You have this enormous state surplus. Uh, you have people generally getting pounded by inflation that so shows no signs of getting better. So what better symbolic move than to say that we're going to halt the automatic increase? But you don't see the legislature scared over the thought of this happening. You don't see the governor fighting for it. And Lee, I can't quite decide if maybe they've come to the conclusion that gasoline prices aren't as potent an issue, or maybe it's just that it's short attention span um, theater in Sacramento, and they've already kind of moved on to the next thing. But it will be interesting to see the conversation about what to do with so-called gas rebates, Lee, because here the governor um, thinks that you and I should get $400 uh, because we own cars in California, and that'll give us some relief. The legislature views it quite differently. They want to give... Uh, uh, adults and children, $200 a piece. Uh, someone's got a blink. Somebody's got a blink. And Bill, um, really interesting point about, about whether perceptions of energy prices, gasoline prices play differently today with voters than they did back in the day. I'm guessing, and that, again, going to go back to the issue that, that got Gray Davis recalled and voted out. It was about energy costs. It was really about electricity costs at that time. Um, so if we, but yeah, so if, if that was here today, um, I think people would be up in arms and there would be, um, there would at least be some lip service. Yeah, but, but um, Lee Davis also got done in by an increase in the vehicle license fees, the so-called car tax. And this was a measure that kicked in because California uh, had a budget shortfall. And so there's revision law that said, we'll increase the the car, the, the fee that you pay in your car. And so for some people that was double and tripled. And so the $150 fee showed up at $450. Of course, people don't follow Sacramento. So, and this was right before the election. So yeah, the reaction to this was WTF and he paid a price for that. And that's what's interesting here, Lee, because there, um, California voters were very upset about something done with their cars. Remember Schwarzenegger campaign showing a wrecking ball, you know, being taken to a junker. He's going to kill the car tax. Ha ha ha. Here you have lawmakers not doing something to help Californians in their love affair with their automobiles. But again, Lee, it seems like they made the calculation that we don't have to do this. We can get by. Yeah, that's that's the message that's coming across. Um and it seems to me to be a legislature and a government that seems out of touch with people and the issues that they're facing on a daily basis. And they're certainly taking a lot of time to get this done. Right. Um, there was Kylie's there was Kylie's proposal to uh, to, to suspend the tax um, entirely. We talked about that I think on our last podcast uh, that that was hijacked by by Democrats into what was turned out to be a tax essentially tax increase. Um, Politically, it's very interesting that this doesn't seem to be more of a sense of urgency here. Um, I don't know why that is, but, you know, I mean, when I go to fill up my car, I'm seeing, <laughs> you know, you you fill up the car and, the you know, the, the person who was there before, you see how much they spent. <laughs> you know, when I pull up to the tank, when I pull up the pump, I'm seeing a lot of $100, $100, $100 bills on those pumps. 
Ouch. Um, yeah, we'll see what happens here. But um, yeah, I think I think what you'll see. So in order to uh, give you any kind of relief, this has to be tied into the next budget, uh, which kicks in on July 1st. We're talking about something being debated um, this month and next. But I think what you're going to see, Lee, is if the legislature is willing to play ball with the governor on his proposal, I think what you're going to get into is um, a very big argument over means testing. And so they're going to look at Leo Hania's lifestyle and Jonathan Mavrotis's and Bill Whalen's and decided either, A, you make too much money, you drive too nice of a car. In other words, I will just be shocked if any of us see a dime of this. Yeah, I, I do too. And, you know, Bill, the other day I was joking with my wife. I said, you know, maybe we should go out and buy an electric car because about five minutes away from us are uh, simply electric car charging ports that yeah. just sit empty. And I said, you know, we can just, you know, we can just charge the car here and I can walk up to the gym and work out and come back in an hour. And, you know, look at, look at how much money we could be saving. And I said, you know, this is just not very efficient, very effective government or wise wise management of energy issues. You would still get $400 under the governor's plan if you have that electric vehicle. I'm not sure yeah. how that's tied to the price of gasoline. But then again, he's hamstring because if you don't reward people who drive EVs, you step on your own message about alternate views. So, Jonathan, we're confused. We're baffled. Probably a good time for us to take us home. Absolutely. Again, again, gentlemen, this has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thank you for your time. Uh, you've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast, devoted governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And, and if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is John Vavroidis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.